Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. My name is Aram, and my pronouns are he, him. I'm the producer of the Dungeons & Dragons podcast, God's Fall. And my name is Dylan. My pronouns are he, him, and I'm a physicist from Canada. Welcome to Kill, Kill Every, Every Monster. Monster. This episode, we are featuring the Aboleth. Aboliths are described in the Monster Manual as creatures that lair in subterranean lakes or the rocky depths of the ocean, often surrounded by the ruins of an ancient, fallen Abolith city. An Abolith spends most of its existence underwater, surfacing occasionally to treat with visitors or deranged worshippers. tells us nothing about the Aboleth or what it looks like. Absolutely nothing. There's not a single description in any book. It, it doesn't say what it looks like. Not in Volos, not in the Monster Manual. There's this amazing art of this truly unique creature, and the description says nothing about it. We are joined by Rich Howard. Rich, whose pronouns are he, him, is a podcaster, writer, and game designer, best known for all things underwater. You may know him as the host of Whelm, The Young Justice Files, concept lead for the Powered by the Apocalypse game Descent into Midnight, or the 5e conversion of Sam Hing's Horrors of the Aboleth. You can find him very occasionally on Twitter at Umbral Walker. Welcome to the show, Rich. I'm so excited to be here. I love your show. Not as excited as we are. This is one of the grandest mismatches in, like, guests and monster because Aboleth are horrible, terrifying, controlling monsters. And then we brought on like one of the sweetest men I've ever met. This is where it all comes out, guys. This is where it all comes out. <laughs> right. It's been your plan the whole time. <laughs> so I was reading through a bunch of stuff uh, prepping for this. And one of the things I have for my kids is the uh, the kids focused like write ups for D&D monsters. It's like the kids bop of the monster manual. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. It's called the Young Adventurers Collection. Okay. And uh, it's really cute because uh, in the monsters, there's no stats. It's just like what's fun and interesting. And they have little lists of, you know, do this and don't do that for certain monsters. And in the section of the Aboleth, it says, do not trust anyone that tells you that Aboleth are great. They're probably mind controlled. <laughs> That's a good hint. Rich, what is an Aboleth? Aboleth are the kindest, gentlest creatures <laughs> next to flumps. I will grant they do have sort of a topological similarity. <laughs> All right. Aboleth, Aboleth uh, to me, there's something about an Aboleth. Like um, every, every game that we know of has the obligatory Cthulhu supplement or whatever. So Aboleth have been a Cthulhu-like creature pretty early in D&D without being Cthulhu. So it's not 
as directly applied. So it's kind of, you can get the feel of it, but it, it there's also something really unique about it. Um, there's also aspects to it that are, they're very difficult to run, but you can, when you nail it, it's like, can be the most horrifying and like memorable villains you've ever had. You, I saw you roll your eyes, Dylan. No, that was, that was in agreement. That was the, like, <laughs> oh. Do you roll your eyes in agreement in Canada? Is that what you guys do? He's been agreeing with you this whole time, Aram. I know. I feel so much better about myself. Don't fucking tell him that. He's wrong. <laughs> it's that, like, oh, God, you're right. Like, they're so good, you know? Yeah. It's the same head gesture, but if it's small, it does look, like, dismissive. I get where you're coming from. So Vandal Savage, for those who don't know, is, is a 50,000-year-old human. There was a rock. There was a meteor, right? Yeah, so a meteor landed. Gave him immortality. And in Young Justice, it turns out that he's been alive so long and has been many key historical figures in history that he actually gave birth to all humans who have the metagene. He's like the, the father of everything. And as the show does really well, which the comics almost never ever do well, he has a long-term plan, a 50,000 year long-term plan to protect his children on his planet, to make everything better. And it's written so tightly from the episode one of season one to the season four we already have, that you're seeing that everything is working to his plan. That is incredibly difficult to do. And Ableth are older. They have more memories. Perfect They memories. never lose memory. So every single Ableth has all knowledge from itself and every creature it's ever come in contact with in perfect, perfect recollection. Rich, what is an Ableth? It is a Cthulhu-like creature. It's tentacled, three-eyed, big, spiky mouth. And I think the reason why I avoid that necessary conversation is because those aren't the most interesting things about what they are. Oh, absolutely not. So what are they? They are their memories. What are they? They are manipulators. What are they? They're older than the gods. They are immortal beyond the concepts of what even a human or a lich or a dragon can think of as immortal. They are actually the most immortal thing in the monster manual. There are a couple of creatures, most fiends, I think devils and demons have this, and I know Rakshasa do as well, where if they die, they come back to life on their main plane. But if you go to hell, you can kill a devil. If you go into the abyss, you can kill a demon. If you kill an abolith, it reforms, its soul goes to the plane of water, and a body forms for it, and there is no breaking that loop. Abolith are just older. Everything we talked about, demons, devils, are all part of an existence that is now our order, our natural order, but they existed before that. There's just a before that aboliths are from. They're just this slightly older thing that existed in a time that we didn't have all this chaos and noise. And they've just been bitter ever since. And I do love that. My heart, my little bitter heart does yeah. enjoy that about them. And 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 it's really difficult, like, particularly even if you're creating your own worlds, it's really hard to think of, like, what comes before, you know, 
humanity, what comes before the elves, the fairies, the dragons, right? We've got a book here that I used to, to teach my kids. Uh, it, it's called Life, the First Four Billion Years. Okay, so the first four billion years before the half billion year that anything that we can really recognize has been. 3.85 billion years is our first trace of modern life. Couldn't be four billion followed by half a billion. That's too long. Gonna be a pedant on this one. <laughs> so my point is, yeah, there was so much before, quote unquote, us. So much before us. Much less so much before dinosaurs. So much before sharks. So much before things that we consider ancient prehistory. There was stuff before that. That is the space in which the Aboleth existed. We're just an annoyance. It's one of the territories where, like, I, I absolutely get, like, these are a horror movie monster. It's very, like, almost tell, don't show. Like, you don't want to see an Aboleth until you absolutely have to. But even then, once you know all of this and you see it, the tentacles, the teeth, the aquatic nature, like, this is a thing that crawled out of the primordial ooze, except it came out smarter than you are. I kind of like the design just because it feeds into that notion of prehistorical beastdom. This actually leans into something that is always a little tough for D&D for me. Moriarty to Sherlock Holmes, Moriarty is an, 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 like a 70-year-old mathematician. You could punch that guy in the face. That is not <laughs> what is horrifying about Moriarty, <laughs> right? That is not why Moriarty is a, a really, really brilliant antagonist to someone like Holmes. It's not that he has a challenge rating. His challenge rating would be like a quarter. Physically, yeah. But that's not what it is. And it's the same thing with the with like the challenge rating, quote unquote, of an Aboleth. Challenge rating 10. Okay, great. So you got to get to it, first of all, right? Where is it? Is it sitting in a, in a slightly damp cave that you can swing swords at it? That's probably not where it should be. And it could be anywhere. And if you've been engaging with it up until now, you've been engaged with agents of it, that it's mind controlled or just illusionary creations. It's made inside your head. You have been engaging with it in a web of lies and deceit this entire time. So you may have just discovered you're dealing with an Aboleth or you don't know. There's just some dark force somewhere pulling the strings. I'm going to push back on this entirely because... Uh, that idea of reforming in that elemental plane of water, the elemental plane of water is connected to all water on the material plane. Mm -hmm. So it could just keep coming back no matter what. So depending on how long that process takes, you could absolutely run a campaign where there is a brute force aboleth that is just like, you, you came up against me at level 10. And then at level 12, I came back because I resent this. And it just slams into the party. This is the first time it lost. It's been doing a hundred thousand year plan and you guys just screwed it up. Somehow by pure luck, you screwed up a hundred thousand year plan. And now it's just consumed with rage. That's too delicate a plan. Make a more robust plan. A hundred thousand year plan probably has a lot of, you know, a lot of legs. And you take out the right leg. It has a redundancy. You would hope so, right? Yeah. Give me that one oversight. It's that one bolt. So that gets me into some some other stuff about the Aboleth that I 
uh, I do in when I'm running Abeleth, but that's not, <laughs> which I think is unfortunate, is not really in the monster manual. You have a creature that just reforms its body. Why does it reform its body this way? Why doesn't it reform its body in what ways that it needs to get jobs done? You have an Aboleth who has a brute force attitude towards solving problems. Why doesn't it come back in a brute force body? Why doesn't it adapt itself? And uh, coming for like the horrors of the Aboleth you mentioned in the intro, um, Sam Hing is a brilliant designer. And he did this Horrors of the Aboleth for Pathfinder in 3.5. I converted it to 5. And it's amazing because it's all of these different challenge ratings, all of these different like mechanical things. It gets into something else that I really love, which is this like, like biomechanics and bioengineering technology that's based on this evolution of, of, of biology. And you tell me that a creature that has all of this perfect memory and this powerful psychic abilities and this ability to mind control things and control water and do all this stuff... And you tell me that it keeps coming back in the same body all the time. The writer in me just wants to be like, no, it needs to be like each time that it comes back, it's going to solve its problem that it had the last time in an interesting, subtle way, right? You know, not just like, oh, it's immune to my power now, but like, no, how did it get to me differently than it did before? How did it find out what I, what my weakness was the last time and how is it going to go after it this time? I also do like the idea of a super ancient force that just never changes. It's like a super old shark. This is the best you're going to get. And it just keeps coming back. Hey, I can't argue. I can't argue with that either. Like that perfect form thing from a shark or, an, or a crocodile, you know, alligator, these things that are so ancient and they've never had to change. There's never been a force of change. There's also the argument of cultural elements because like the monster manual gives them cities these are a primordial ruling class that are running out of spite against the gods. And you've just implied that our form is insufficient? No, no, no. The only thing that could beat us was the gods until this obnoxious little shit wandered into my cave. I'll go back and I'll kill him and then I will continue being perfect. <laughs> I do love the arrogance of that. One of the things they didn't really roll forward into 5th edition that, that gets into some of the things that that you have to really be careful with. You're dealing with a creature that controls minds. You get dealing with a creature who dominates other creatures. You get into creatures in, in the history, there was the, um, the Ulatkini. So the Ulatkini was, uh, what, what after the Aboleth fell, then this became like this race called the, that what modern civilization called scum. And those were the previous editions versions of this thing. But the Ulatkini were a, a race that, you know, were enslaved by, but also were part of the entire civilization of the Aboleth. And so they don't really mention that in fifth edition that I'm aware of. I, I didn't see, I haven't seen any references to them. There's not a lot of background on the Aboleth, just kind of like what they are. Maybe for the best. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even ignoring the simplicity of like just dealing with a species that has been completely enslaved, which also a little bit of redundancy with the gith in terms of just covering ground. With the immortality level, the, the longevity of Aboleth, and the fact that they were a society, they have, there are a shit ton of them. We have no way to kill them. There should be as many as there ever were. Aram and I talk pretty regularly about just monster bloat. We have the dragons that were so old that they 
had to be taken down by the gods and slightly older than the oldest dragons is the oldest hags and older than either of those and also the gods is the aboleth and also there's the mind flayers that have no origin and are so old and weird and there's these postulates of like maybe they're from the future because even the aboleths don't remember the creation of the mind flayers you have to stop putting things in at some point <laughs> Yeah, where are these creatures? Where are they? Where are where are the lands and the yeah. and the space that be given over to them? Mm -hmm. Where do they exist in this world if they're this immortal race that never dies? Until you start publishing books and explicitly stating, and this is a setting where this is our deal with this is what we're dealing with. Please don't put in the weird slave race from the Aboleth Empire. <laughs> right, right. You can't just say that and then <laughs> Leave them hanging there. Well, and this is this is where I get into my marine science thing. Like the the amount of space that exists in the ocean is is beyond comprehensive to us compared to even just what we think of as how much space there is on the surface in our tiny little wedge of the surface that we live on. And so when you're talking about the Aboleth, they never say how many there were. So what if there were 50 of them? But they're all living in the ruins of Aboleth cities. That would imply city. But the cities themselves, which is, which gets me into, again, the Ulakini, right? If you go into the stuff where like, oh, the goblins were created by Maglubliet, right? Or the dwarves were created by, or the gnomes were created by. Well, you, you could say like, okay, well, the Aboleth were before all of this stuff and they were before the gods. So were the Ulakini, were the, were the scum, the Ulakini, were they enslaved races? Because that sounds like they didn't exist yet. Or were they literally created by the Aboleth? Mm. Are they another version? Because they are also, they are also immortal for age. They can be killed, right? unlike the Aboleth, but they're immortal. So were they created? Do we know where they are? Do we assume that they're enslaved? Or is it just like, oh, well now, over time, a current, like more Ulatkini can be made in a weird kind of not quite the same way because there happens to be all these humanoids running around and we're just going to use it to you, right? And so that can be a way to go for it as well. That's very fair, yeah. It's still dark. Oh, yeah. I create a whole race of people to immortally serve me. They're not flumps, okay? I, I lied earlier. They're not flumps. You cannot tell a non-dark story with an aboleth just inherently. Rich, are Aboleth monsters? Absolutely. Unequivocally. There are a lot of times when you guys ask that question, I'm like, what is a monster? Aren't we the monsters? In this particular case, I think if you're thinking of a monster, quote unquote, as something that has completely alien needs, wants, if you're going to position humanoids as the protagonists, it is unequivocally an antagonist. It wants things that you don't want. It doesn't care about you. It is going to use you to further its own ends. It doesn't have any kind of moral concept that you have. And in fact, any concept or illusion of reality that you have, it's like, okay, well, I'll just use that illusion of reality you have because it's not real because my reality is real. This is the real world. You're living in the illusion of safety. You're living in the illusion of culture. You're living in the illusion of economy. You want money? Okay, I guess. 
I don't know what this stupid little metal thing is that you want, but geez, this makes things really easy for me. You're dealing with something that is, for all intents and purposes, a god. Except it doesn't care about or respect you, in, even as a worshiper. Like, the gods care about the other species. They're at least concerned. A god wants prayers. Yeah. A god, like, is taking care of some aspect of reality. And Abolith does not fucking care who or what you are. And put it another way, a god wants and or needs something from its worshipers. So either it cares about them or it needs something from them. And Abolith doesn't want or need anything from you. It needs you to get out of its way. The truth is there's just something stopping us from going back to reality, right? These gods are almost a temporary blip in the way. This is just the hiccup until we're back to our existence that was a long time before all this nonsense came along. And that's one of the beautiful sort of eldritch horror elements of it is at the end of the day, unless you write in, and this could be the cool seed for an adventure, finding a way to kill and actually destroy an abolith. But at the same time, unless that is the thing you do, the party never wins. There's always a threat in the future. You've gotten the abolith out of the way and it'll be back. It doesn't care. Like, you you inconvenienced it. Because that's the thing. Aram, you're right. Yeah, there are obviously going to be a thousand moving parts in any complex hundred millennia plan. But at the same time, if you have a hundred millennia to build up the plan, it's going to be building in different directions. It's going to be branching. It's it's like saying, yeah, but I could cut down any tree in this forest. Like, yeah. And you can't cut down the forest. Right. There's a trope called a Xanatos Gambit. Um, which is from uh, Gargoyles, the character David Xanatos from Gargoyles. And it's, it's, the, it's a plan put into place that no matter what happens, I win. You kill me, I win. You don't kill me, I win. You stop this part of the plan, I win. Because this other part of the plan comes into place. And when you're dealing with somebody unlike Xanatos, who is, who's mortal, and you're dealing with an Abeleth, it's like, okay, so you killed me. I mean, I, whatever. Like, first of all, I'll be back. But second of all, like, I, there's still, I, I don't have to directly direct anything that's happening. Everything is already in motion. I'm going to regenerate before more instructions need to be put into the machine. So when we're talking about, like, the Abeleth is just like, this is a blip on the radar, right? I mean, so the Roman Empire was what 2000 years thousand years I, how, however long the roman empire lasted or even the united states which is just a few hundred years old right and we're living in that reality some of us anyway are living in the reality this, whatever this reality is of the united states imagine what that looks like to a creature that was alive if you say well our civilization was around a billion years underwater ruling everything when the continents were still moving around and, you know, plants, literal grass had, hadn't even evolved yet. Elder Torah is not a genre that D&D as a system is made for. This is the time where I'm like, yes, good. This is correct. Yep, this works. You've created a monster that, like I said, is an infinite boss monster that will just keep coming back, that is slowly going to rule the world, that is plotting the destruction of the gods and something so vastly beyond the characters that at the end of the day, your campaign dealing with an abolith feels like this tiny little intersection with the abolith campaign way the fuck over here that it does not notice you. I believe that the abolith as a monster 
its most critical and important thing in a story is to help us touch and understand the illusions we have in life so that we can better understand ourselves as, as human beings, as players, assuming everyone's a human, and the characters, getting to know our characters and about what it truly makes them tick because they live so outside of the illusion of civilization, the illusion of politics, the illusion of things. And they get us to the core of who we are and can use that story as it. That's why, like, okay, you walk into a cave and there's an Ablith and a bunch of Ulatkini and some, you know, a bunch of underwater creatures and you fight it. That is zero interesting to me. If you get to it and fight it, that can be interesting, but there's gotta be stuff. You gotta come out of, of, of an interaction with an Aboleth changed fundamentally inside yourself, one way or the other, to see yourself in ways that you haven't seen yourself before. If you do go deal with an Aboleth, it is like, okay, we have to now. We have exhausted every other way of dealing with this. Now we have got to get a boat, go to the middle of the ocean, or dig into this cave, or teleport into this extra-dimensional space and actually deal with this. But it's never your first option. Like, that is a end-of-the-road option, and you've been interacting with this thing for 10, 12, 15 levels. I think an Aboleth is the perfect long arc big bad. It can touch your campaign in so many ways. It can influence so many things. It clearly has been planning for so long. It just works so well as getting its tendrils quite literally in your entire plot. With as many like adventure paths and campaign books and all things that come out, it's almost never used. Because it has to be like, it demands to be the focal point. It's almost like if you put an Ableth into the campaign, the campaign's about the Ableth now. You shouldn't even know or understand anything about that until toward the end of the campaign. Like, oh, what? Like, this is what's been happening? It, it, it's so much about the feel of what you're doing with the Ableth, not just plopping it in the middle of a field and fighting it. We talk a lot about environmental effects of monsters, how sometimes monsters are more of like a hurricane than they are of an actual creature. And an Aboleth definitely is a force of nature. Like it should feel like something before it actually is something. It's an event, right? Like it's a it's a natural disaster before you even understood what natural disasters were. Yeah, it's a hurricane with a plan. Tsunami with a plan. Yeah. It's the one who told the butterfly to flap. It's exactly what it yes. is. It's precisely what it is. Wait for it, wait for it. And now. And then they just wait 10,000 years for their plans to unfold. Tapping its tentacles together. Like uh, <laughs> exactly. Mr. Burns. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Little bubbles. <laughs> <laughs> Rich, what would you change about the 5th edition Ableth? This immortality thing. The gods showed up and ended their civilization. How? 
there's way more civilization underwater than there is on the surface. There are way more sentient and sapient creatures underwater than there are on the surface. So what if they weren't immortal? What if they lived a really, really long time, but the gods came down and they were strong enough and powerful enough and knew a way to actually literally kill Abeleth until there were only, you know, 50 left. And these, from the aftermath, figured out a way or made a deal or did something where they would remain immortal and they could come back to have their vengeance. That fuels rage. That fuels bitterness. That fuels anger. It Otherwise, it just feels like, yeah, you're bitter? That's, that's a long time to be bitter. The gods trick them. Part of the getting locked in, they lock them in with their old emotions. They lock them in with their old yeah. feelings. They can't mate. They can't create new ones. This could also be why they can't evolve. What they did was they pulled a Doctor Who on them. They pulled a Jack Harkness on them. Yes, they can't die because they're locked in time and they can never change. If you have all of the memories before something horrible happened and all of the memories after something horrible happened, you can contextualize that middle ground. But if you're the last generation, if you're the last handful that survived a terrible event and then locked yourself in the state of trauma that you had immediately after that occurred, I'm not a fan of stories where you take someone reasonable, have someone ho something horrible happen to them, and go like, oh, there's no recovering from that, and now, now it's made them evil. This crystallizes that into a tone that fits a lot better. Some people, most people, even when they face these horrors, go on to be just as good, if not better people. But if they can't have that time, if they can't process, again, as Dylan said, if they're just locked in the trauma, that's going to build something monstrous. What if they make a deal? Like maybe, maybe they were created by some other dimensional Cthulhu horror. But what if they made a deal with it? What if they made a deal and the deal was, I will give you perfect memory. I will give you immortality. I will allow you to, to bring back what you had before. I'm gonna give you all of those things. The side effect is, if you have absolutely perfect recall of all of those horrors and live in it daily, that you are currently living it. And people who experience trauma, people who experience PTSD and complex PTSD, they are they their self-defense mechanisms are so set up for survival that even when it is technically safe around them, they can't give that up they can't put down a defense because that's when the tiger attacks right is when your defenses are down it, there's a piece of it that just feels like so like sad and like you know for the abolith being in this place right and so then you can start looking at a storyline or a concept of like, how do we really stop the Aboleth? Right. How do we save the Aboleth? How do we free them from the hell they have been living in? The absolute everyday constant living hell they've been living in. What if we offer them what they never knew that they really wanted? What do you really need to offer a being that can never be destroyed, that'll always be a threat? You need to offer them salvation.
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Last time on Kill Every Monster. Summon my imaginary friend's sword. The sword itself, uh, I believe, to be my like a manifestation of my friend. I want you to tell me about the first time your imaginary friend lent you his sword. Oh, I was being bullied, um, and like people are like, I kind of like I'm a scrawny guy, and and I was being like pushed around, unable to like stand up for myself. Like suddenly, the sword just like appears in front of me, um, in between me and and the bullies, and. Um, I, I, I pick up the sword and I point at them, and that's enough to scare them away. And, and it's been with me ever since. Your friend is, quite frankly, a bad friend. He helps you, but at the same time, there are times where things have gone wrong and he's entertained. This abolith is a very old abolith. This whole complex, this whole structure existed in worship to it. And it was at one point very, very powerful to the point where people had to come and stop it. And that created a cataclysm that buried the Abolith and its entire group of worshippers under an avalanche. The Ableth is still alive. It still lives down there, but it's wounded. It's vulnerable. So what he knows is that there's a way to go kill it. Flumfree's little fart jets are fading as he slides along your blade. His body is pulsing a deep violet. The butterflies swirl around us as the tea kettle wails. With his last bit of strength, he reaches out with a tentacle and gently brushes your face. By claiming your soul, the beast has revealed its heart. And you are shown exactly where the abolis heart lies. And at that moment, you are certain your sword would destroy it. I believe in you, Arx, he whispers, and then slumps to the floor. Aram, tell Rich what your character wants. 
It's not so much what Bentley wants. I hate this. <laughs> Want is a thing for people outside of their station. Want is a thing that people desire past themselves. I don't want anything, Dylan. I deserve things. It just happens to be the thing I deserve resides at the bottom of this sunken temple. So I'm going to change how the question's asked. I don't want to know what you want. I want to know why you want. Well, why I deserve to have oh, these Christ. things is because power needs to consolidate. It's a natural thing. If it has to consolidate, it needs to consolidate with those most worthy, those most capable of wielding it properly to its fullest extent. And therefore... You're why they put word counts on assignments. <laughs> and therefore, forever told, this is why I must claim what is rightfully mine for the good of us all. Did Dylan leave? Please, no, yeah, I also want a bomb. Aram, your character is going to make my character feel real conflicted. <laughs> no, this isn't mind control. I'm just going to stab him to death. <laughs> you think you are a creature of power and station, and you deserve this. You are in a dark, wet hole. You're wrong. <laughs> like, there is a immediate, like, contradiction in terms in where you are and why you think you deserve to get these things. Here's what it is. I've been told these things my whole life. I believe in them. My mother believe, was, like, literally thinks she had a religious encounter, which would not be unusual in this world, right? A God told her these things were destined. There were people... I was, I was basically raised in a small little cult, right, of people who believed that this was true. I'm 36 now. It hasn't come true yet. This is the last desperation play to cling on to this idea that I'm special. There it is. That's what I want. We have to be strategic with the questions we, are at, we ask him, especially once he's in character. <laughs> That's fair. Susie, tell me about Ilana's goals. What, what is it that you generally do? Well, Ilana when she is not out adventuring, is a librarian at the Temple of Salune. She's a guardian keeper um, of knowledge and uh, information and uh, teaching. She's a teacher, a scholar at the temple. And her whole life has been driven by that pursuit of knowledge and of that pursuit of bettering herself, getting closer to her goddess, doing good in the world through spreading knowledge, teaching the youth, teaching the old. She'll teach anyone that wants to listen. Um, and her lesson's semi-popular. She has a little bit verbose at times, you know? There's the students that nod off in her lectures, but she's just happy to be there regardless. But she, she's been there for quite some time. Being a high elf, uh, she has a long lifespan, so she's one of the more tenured professors at this uh, temple. Um, but she's starting to yearn for a little bit more than beyond that. She's been there a long time. She's put in hours and hours of research, but no one ever really acknowledges the work she's done. No, and that's that's fair. Everybody gets that wanderlust. Everybody kind of has that feeling of needing to get away from the desk. But you've been basically burrowing. 
Out on the Sword Coast, you've been plunging into these ruins. There's evidence that there was a war fought against something. Lots of people died, an old city. What drew you here specifically? She found a old dusty tome about a set of ruins, an old civilization that was here hundreds, maybe even thousands of years ago. There's not much of a trace of it left, but there was something, a passage in that book, which made her think. And she had a little bit of a, like, a light bulb moment and just one day packed up and headed out because she wanted to find these ruins. She wanted to find that scrap. She wanted to find that juicy discovery. Which of your two party members did you run into first? And what made you decide that you wanted to travel together rather than just forge your own path? I think she probably bumped into maybe Bentley first uh, at an inn or a tavern somewhere along the road. And although she may find his personality a little grating, fair, uh, she spent her time around people like Bentley. She knows how to maneuver around someone with such a, uh, shall we say, a personality. And uh, (laughs) she heard he was heading out that way. And, you know, one thing she's also learned from her time at the temple is um, if someone with means is encouraging something, you just go along with it. Because, you know, you're going to get good lodgings, you're going to get good food, and you never know a little gold might fall in your pocket as well. This is basically a walking grant. I was never headed that way. I heard a little, just a little snip about you searching for something. Some, mm. you know, dark, or maybe handed you a glass of wine, just started to chat you up, and you told me something I wanted to hear. And then I just started to spin whatever you wanted to hear to ensure mm-hmm. that I'd be coming along on this journey. And I do have coin to spend that. I stole a few minutes ago and we'll continue to steal in order to fund whatever we need to do. I won't tell you that of, of you know, of course, I have some mm-hmm, story mm-hmm. about a, you know, my my aunt was always generous. And then we just continue on our way. <laughs> Wonderful. I love that. So then Aram, you clearly have this sort of wealthy persona going. Bentley yes. is a heavy air quotes, man of means. Thank you. When you realize you were basically wandering through a wet cave for the next couple days, do you ever question it? I perhaps would have worn different leather, but look, do I want to be here? Is it awful? Is it gross? Is it beneath me? Why, yes, quite literally. Sometimes you have to lower yourself in order to find your true strength. Then I want to know, what was Bentley's feeling on seeing Oryx down here? How did we run into Oryx? I've been wandering around in these caves a little bit aimlessly slightly. I'm just a human, and these are some very dark caves. Filled with guilt. Yes. (laughs) And stumbling around filled with this deep sense of guilt of dread some doubts it's been uh maybe the first big seed of doubt that maybe this isn't where he should be and it's the feeling of like when you were well 
a perfect analogy like when you're swimming in like the ocean and you get out like a little bit too far and you look back at the shore and you're like oh i don't know if i can make it back now and he's realized how deep he's gone and then to his delight and surprise he sees other people and he just like latches on to you as somebody who can either guide him forward or out or just wherever at least he's not alone what state are you in like are you full golem right now are you like are you somewhat mean how long has it been since flumfrey tidied your laundry you know? oh, i think that was i think that was uh pretty recently i think it's only yeah. been a, a couple days so it's still yeah. like fresh and yeah. um you've had enough time to wander through the tunnels to a little area that's accessible from another another cave to the surface somewhere where like they didn't see what happened they have no knowledge of it then i guess from bentley's point of view he'd be suspicious of why you're here because what would be the reason you would have given and like when you see me, I'm not carrying any weapons. Right. I'm carrying like survival equipment. I've just got like like a walking stick or whatever, like something to kind of help find my footing. Like you're not geared up right. You shouldn't be here, right? Right. It doesn't really look like I should be able to defend myself in any way. Um, but like I would basically tell you I'm lost. I I don't know. I don't know where I am. Please help me. Rich, I want to know. What's the historical tidbit that you fed to Oryx that made Elana think he was worth keeping around, worth traveling with? So, Elana, you said that you found in you know ancient temple, very little known from that. You found some bits and pieces of some writing that you were unable to really piece together. And you had some suspicions about it. But as soon as you, you, you like had it out, you're looking at it, and Oryx is there and sees it over your shoulder and says, oh, that's, that's, that's a really interesting uh, take on that. As if he could just read what was there and you're like, mm -hmm. what are you talking about? Oh, this is a viewpoint from, you know, some ancient culture, whatever it happens to be, on the history of how the gods came to to exist. So he's looking at it as if he's reading it like it's common, and you know it is not. He's just casually reading a Dead Sea scroll just right. over her shoulder. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's just knowing. There's a knowing you had, and it just was like, oh, that's actually that's actually really interesting. And you're just casually having a conversation. And unless she says something to you about the fact that you shouldn't be able to read this, <laughs> yeah. I don't I don't think you do I don't I don't think you are in the back seat. So you're acting almost as like a pre-processor, like the knowledge that is hitting your head, Alex, has already been translated. You have no idea that you shouldn't understand. Yeah, it's just you know, I just, I don't know where I, I just picked it up. It's like when you read something on the internet 10 years ago um, and have no idea why you know this information, but it's like just some like really obscure um, bit of trivia. 
Um, and you're like, yeah, of course I know you, you pick this stuff up along the way, right? You're not a worldly person, <laughs> or it's, right? So you just know this thing and you don't know that this is unusual or something strange. I think uh, Alana isn't um, suspicious at all. Um, she's she's one of those wonderful academics that has absolutely zero common sense. She's not thinking, why does this person know this? <laughs> this is strange. Speaking as an academic, one of our grandest plagues is not recognizing that other people don't understand. So if someone came over to me and was just conversant in nuclear physics, nothing would click for me that like this is out of the ordinary. Yeah. Of course you also know this. Great, cool. In her mind, she's not like, this is a strange person that's just rocked up out of nowhere and can read the scroll. She's just like, oh, a like-minded soul. And so she immediately just takes to Oryx and she doesn't, I mean, I mean, she asks, you know, um, how, how, how did you know this? You know, how, how did you, where did you learn how to read this? this is, and then she spouts off, you know, this is from civilization that's been gone for thousands of years. There's not a, a living speaker that can speak this language. And then she's like, until today. And she hits him with that, hmm, interested face. Do you have an answer? Bentley doesn't like when the focus of attention is off of him. <laughs> so Bentley is like talking about how the architecture is this, that, and just trying to make a bullshit to draw, to, you know, try and draw the spotlight away, but it's not working at all. Aram, I want you to give me a history roll just to, just yeah. to see if you can say something useful. <laughs> I've got a plus two and I rolled an eight plus two is 10. So if you look over here, you'll see that these columns uh these columns stalactites as one might call them were designed by god because they weren't designed they were made and he's just like wandering now further and further away as you guys are completely ignoring him <laughs> yeah in her mind alana's like that's a common misconception it's often thought that they were formed by a god but really if you look under the <laughs> she's just like in her own little monologue <laughs> <laughs> The three of you sort of congregate, and Oryx, every now and then, as you walk, you have that little pull. You remember this. It's the pull that led you here. It's the pull that, after Flumfrey died, kind of quieted for a while. Oh, is that what we're saying happened now? Flumfrey just passed away, <laughs> did he? <laughs> but largely, you wander. I'm going to say it's about two days before the tunnels start to open. There is a phase where almost it becomes temple-like. There are true columns and stonework and masonry. Someone was making bricks and bringing them down here. Dwarves were here. Yeah, only dwarves, no bricks. Great work, Bentley. Thank you. <laughs> but you get down and it becomes more natural again. It starts opening up into true caverns. Not tunnels, not little rooms huge spaces, wet, slick walls, and eventually small ponds. Maybe just flooded tunnels, a little network throughout the entire place. Rich, you feel them. At first, you had that reach. You could touch Oryx like it was nothing. He was just another tendril. But now they're all close enough. When they start getting close enough that you would consider it 
your lair, what's the first thing they notice? What changes? This this place that you're in, Temple, is a is a the first thing that Alana really notices. This is a, this is the same kind of temple that you had found before. This is some remnants of this ancient civilization worshiping this ancient deity that you are trying to find more out about and understand more. Maybe a precursor to Saloon, say Saloon, or uh, someone who worked with Saloon who disappeared out of history and no longer has any followers. So this temple looks more organized than the one that you had found. There's bits and pieces of this, right? Echoes of this thing that are in this space. And where Saloon, if I remember correctly, is a god of the moon. And yeah, that's right. This servant had something to do with the tides, had something to do with the ocean, had something to do with this place that Saloon has a domain over, but maybe doesn't know as well as this servant had known. At some point, this was underwater, and it's no longer underwater. But the the walls are covered in this thin, slimy, kind of a, a partially little, lightly glowing mucus that's all over the place. Possibly some kind of creature, some kind of ancient benign slime. You're not quite sure. But there's a lot of it around this space. It's very damp and wet. I think... Uh, Alana, she is just immediately, she's she's awestruck by what she's seeing and her mind is spinning with these possibilities, you know, uh, is this a companion god to Saloon? Like, is, you know, the moon and the tides, they have a relationship. Is there a relationship here? And so she's she's verbalizing all this as she's wandering around and she pops a little golden, uh, not golden, um, glass bottle off her hip and she scrapes some of that mu- mucus into it. You know, she collects little samples for later. And she's got a little notebook out. She's cast dancing lights. So she's writing notes feverishly and she's just wandering around and she's completely oblivious to like anything else happening around her except just what she is taking in. As she said that, Bentley would be like, well, clearly it's magical. And he would pull out this glass wand that ends in a little glass bulb and he would wave it. He's detecting magic. He doesn't expect it to detect his magic. He's using it as cover to detect magic on his new companions. (laughs) Okay. So I would like to know, uh, Susie, you don't have to tell me the specific items because you know how detect magic works. If you have any magic items on you, give me like a rough school of magic that he's going to pick up. She's actually not carrying any magical items. Uh, All her gear is just... There's no mundane magical ping. Yeah, mundane. My only gear is my faith. You pick up the spells she's casting. And her holy symbol, I guess. <laughs> Alex, how about you? Uh, I believe he would pick up the school of evocation, but there's a mix of stuff. Evocation is the strongest, um, but there's there's undertones of, of other kinds of magic in there. Um, sitting in the back of Orcs's bag, 
Um, would you pick up what it is? I don't believe so. No, I think I think detect magic is just going to be auras, maybe the strength of the aura. But like, I, I, if you're talking about the item, I think you are. Then I think that is a fair description. Rich, would you pick up enchantment when he's looking at Alex or Oryx? I think this is an interesting question because you're a warlock with what seems to be an Aboleth as a patron, and an Aboleth is not a godlike. Well, don't tell it that, but it's not a godlike creature. <laughs> <laughs> I think this Aboleth is trapped. And I think that it's had weak communication and a connection to be able to, like, maybe plug him into something. But it's not direct. The Aboleth is, is manipulating kind of from the outside. Like, I'm giving you some power. I can, I can get you access to that power, but... I can't make you do stuff. I can make you, I can, I can help you want to do stuff. You're right. You don't have the level of divinity as an Aboleth to necessarily be a patron. But you are in a temple. What I want to know is, were you effectively a cleric to a god before gods? Is that what you're channeling? Uh... When they're reading about this thing controlling the tides... Is that what we're dealing with? This temple, th this god, this assistant saloon to saloon did exist. I think I wiped out every remnant of this until the very end. And then I was trapped, like literally trapped physically to the point where I can't even kill myself to get free. And I am reaching out. The only way they could stop me was to basically put me in the effectively like a time stop bubble. Like I'm just immobilized in a thing. And, but I have absorbed so much knowledge and understanding from this, the followers that I consumed and used that I can basically, you have the sword, right? That you can just manifest. Maybe it's something that one of the a spell that was granted to the paladins or the clerics, the warrior of this, of this, thing like like this is a spell it's it's like divine strike your divine strike is really just you're manifesting this sword made of moonlight or or something like that whatever it, whatever it happens to be and i i gain access to those things and knowledge to those things enough to be able to grant that power but i can't i'm, I'm kind of stuck fantastic so i need him to come and free me but i know he doesn't have the power by himself so thank goodness he met bentley found someone useful <laughs> that's what everyone says after they've met me thank goodness we met that gentleman yes yeah let's go with that i leave a trail of happy customers from coast to coast that's not even what i say <laughs> what i want to know the the last bit before i'm going to put you guys into uh into contact what is it and open to the the floor for players which one of you and what is it that notices something is wrong? It was not me. I can't see. <laughs> Probably not even Alana. I think she's too engrossed in, in maybe some like uh, carvings on a wall or something like that. You know, yeah. like her attention is just absolutely away from yeah. <laughs> anything. Forest for the trees. I am always concerned with myself. Yeah. So if something was happening that was going to threaten me, I would notice. Okay. What do you pick up on that tells you that things aren't like right? I just have a sense of for danger. 
right? Like I just yeah. know when things are going to go wrong. I just I just can feel a shift in the air, the hair on the back of my neck. Like there's just I just know when something's coming. I, th I think I know what it is. Oryx, as he's walking along, is like, uh, you know, the thing where you kick rocks ahead of yourself. And like he's kicking the rocks into the water and it, it splashes, but like it's kind of like a, this dulled splash. It doesn't echo the way it, it should. The water is too still, even when it's being disturbed. Mm, I like that. Actually, that wraps into one of the uh, one of the lair actions really nicely. Bentley, the thing that no one believes, the thing that you saw is one time he kicked a rock in and just before it hit, the water came up to meet it. It seized the rock and pulled it under. And you're convinced every time he's kicked a rock in, every time it's been too quiet, that's what's going on is the water is receiving the rocks rather than having them knocked into it. So as I see that, I'm going to reach into my coat. I'm going to pull out this small bag. I'm going to reach into this bag that looks like a small little coin purse that's empty, right? And I grab something and my hand starts shifting and I pull out a struggling brat. All right, then. And I toss it into the water and wait to see what's going to happen. I'm going to ask first for the player response when he pulls a rat <laughs> out of a bag and throws it into a, a puddle. Was that always in your bag? Uh, in a way. It's there as soon as I need it. I think Alana does like a double take. You know, she's looking at her notes. She's writing. She hears this rodent screeching. She looks up, sees this rat just get hurled into the water. And she's like, quirks an eyebrow and just shrugs. And continues <laughs> Bentley's always been a weird fuck. This is just how she goes. <laughs> Seem weirder. Rich. Yeah. What's the response? So you throw the rat at the water. The same thing happens. The water reaches up and receives the rat and pulls it under the water. The other thing that's happening in this water, in addition to this bizarre thing that um, Oryx has noticed, is that there's bioluminescence in the water. And so when things go into it, it's stirring up the bacteria and it's glowing. And so when it's done that, you can see deeper into this dark pool than you normally could. So when it gets pulled, the rat gets pulled into the water, it goes down like a couple, three feet, and you can see the bioluminescence being stirred up as it goes down. And then the rat, originally struggling, gets down there and stops moving. Not that it's drowned, it's that it's literally stopped moving. It doesn't sink, doesn't rise, isn't breathing. It's just stuck in place, held by the water. And then the bioluminescence fades, and then you no longer see it, and it's just dark. I'm sure it's fine. Alana looks up again and goes, I'm not quite a biologist, but water doesn't typically do that, right? Does water typically take things and then not kill them? No. Not that I'm familiar with, but I thought you might know something. Well, as I said, I'm, I'm a historian uh, and uh, archaeologist, not a biologist, but that does seem peculiar. As a historian, was there ever a time that water was different? Well, there was the one time, and then she goes off on this, oh, yeah. like, this one time story. story of the time <laughs> that the primordial of water was agitated. Yeah. yeah. 
Bentley seems to be considering the puddle for a good minute. And then, oh, like he has a eureka moment, pulls out the same bag and tries to pull a second rat out. But the rat is just not giving up and grabbing onto the inside, like bites my hand. Like, ah, fine. Well, I'm out of ideas. Your brilliant idea was the same idea again, just so we're clear. (laughs) In science, Dylan, you have to repeat an experiment before you assume it's true. Yeah, please explain that to me. So, Alana, I have a question for you. You've gotten some impressions from researching this former, you know, whatever, uh, partner of Saloon. What image do you have of them? Like, what do you feel like they looked like? What do you think they feel like they felt like to their followers? What impression did you get from the little bit you've been able to piece together? So from what she can piece together and from what state the ruins are in, she imagines this god or or a demigod, maybe they didn't even reach godhood, but something that's tempestuous in nature because the tides can be very calming. They can be, you know, they um, flood deltas so that we can grow crops and stuff, but also the tides are incredibly destructive. And um, from what she knows of gods, I mean, her god goddess is very... um, merciful and peaceful and kind but a lot are very wrathful and so she tends to do that horrible historian archaeologist thing being jumping to the worst case conclusion and being like oh this must have been a terribly uh, wrathful god so she's imagining that this place was built as maybe it was a place of appeasement rather than worship you know like a please don't kill us kind of temple rather than a we venerate your holiness kind of temple mm, interesting all right is there a visual that you have that that your character specifically has been playing with? I think uh, she imagines um, some sort of almost druidic kind of appearance, uh, someone who maybe um, you know has uh, aquatic almost features, uh, maybe a semi-scaled skin, and their clothing is uh, hung in seaweed and and netting and that kind of someone grand and imposing. So I think as you're looking at this this pool that goes out on the on next to this what you can only call a temple, uh, this pool that goes out and perhaps even goes under a ledge and is maybe larger than you might ex- might expect, you you see that bioluminescence stirring and rising to the surface, and you see a kind of a light image, not a bright, not shining of this being rise up out of the water has pearlescent scales across the front of their their uh, forehead down the side goes down their back has uh, light fins and gills um it's a kind of a deep blue glowing seaweed that's draped over them is rising up out of the water And they're walking across the water toward the three of you. At this point, seeing this this being arise out of the water, uh, Alana, she um, she immediately like drops the journal and, and pencil in her hand, and she's staring at this creature, and she's trying to remember the. You got to be polite. This is potentially a god. Uh, get it together, and she has that flustered moment of like. 
Oh, she almost has to close her mouth because her jaw has dropped. Um, and she adopts kind of a very neutral um, uh, body position, um, something almost in reverence. She hasn't quite dropped to one knee and, and like a hand on her heart yet, but she's like, okay, okay, we're going to be first contact potentially with this god for a long time. We got to be cool. <laughs> and so she's looking across at Oryx and Bentley as well to be like, okay, cool. Keep it calm. Keep it cool. <laughs> Do we see this as well? Yes. Oryx, this feels familiar. This is a new image. You've never seen it before. And something about it just hits your mind like home. Comfort. I think Oryx reaches behind him just out of sight and pulls out of his, his sword. But instead of pointing the sword out towards himself, he points it down on the ground and kneels with his head bowed towards this being that's come out of, out of the water, his head bowed towards it. So, Ilana, you have seen images in two different scrolls that you've found of this sword. Oh. This divine weapon that had been granted by this god. There is something unique about the, vi the visual of this sword that is telling you that it's the same mystical origin as a thing you have seen in a millennia's old scroll coming from this guy. Okay. Bentley looks at that sword, by the way, and then like just glances down at his, you know, supposed wand of magic detection and just like, I got ripped off. Yeah, like that, his arms. You picked up some evocation. That was clear conjuration bullshit. That doesn't fucking track. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck this bullshit one that guy sold me for like 500 gold. <laughs> Next time you got a minimum fifth level wizard, you can't trust a first level wand smith. <laughs> These fly by third level wizards, man. That's why you got to shop local and not from chains. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but seeing uh, Oryx get down uh, on one knee and, and bring out the sword, uh, Alana's going to take a step back because something in her brain is like, oh, is he like a champion of this god? Is he someone, a, a worshipper? And she feels like she's intruding on this moment, seeing as he has clearly this much reverence for this figure. So she's going to take a couple of steps back from Oryx and just just observe and now she's in full-on like david attenborough mode like in her head this like and here we see <laughs> it is natural habitat and Bentley <laughs> takes a few steps forward to stand right behind oryx with a hand on his shoulder supporting him as i always have <laughs> <laughs> so uh so bentley you you get a feeling inside of your mind like that that thing you said that you're like, oh, I detect danger. Like, I know when something's just not right. Yeah. And it starts being connected to the idea that, you know, every time you've had that feeling and you've gone through that danger, you have come out the other side a little bit more glorious. So is it danger you're sensing or destiny? Oh, I like that. I knew you would. That is a good thought I have just independently had. <laughs> <laughs> It is destiny. <laughs> destiny would feel dangerous. It would feel threatening, but clearly it must be. It also feels deserved. It's not fear that I am feeling. It's anticipation of my own greatness. Of course, that'll be a little scary. 
And every time you build this beautiful image in your mind, it is it is solidified and it is it is it is granted some more permanence, some more it all makes sense. Yes. So much sense. Gosh, I've always been right. I had a little bit of doubt. You you do once in a while have some doubt, but I've always been right about everything. Amazing. It's so great. For me, yeah. it really is. It's a shame no one else will ever feel this way. <sighs> no, but everyone will get to see the glory that is Bentley. In a way, they'll get to enjoy it in their own yes. small way by looking at right. me. You see what I fucking deal with. <laughs> I, if only if only mobile phones were a thing on the sod coast, because I'd be there like, oh, this is gonna be funny. <laughs> Record. <laughs> Just gonna do a quick live. Twitch, quick. <laughs> I came on the show to feed uh, Aramzi ego. I'm just letting you know. <laughs> to be fair, it doesn't take much. It'll eat anything. It's like a goat. <laughs> It'll just <laughs> consume whatever you chuck at it. It's an ego. Yeah, it's exactly oh, what it no. is. Anyway, so you approach the characters and your guys. So Oryx, you 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 kneel down with the sword out. What's yeah. going through your mind right now? I think what's going through my mind is like. My, I kind of instinctually reach out telepathically and I feel like I, I finally found what I'm looking for I finally made it and I'm looking upon this being this is this was my purpose and this is the, what has brought me this far I reach out telepathically to say I've come all this way but I don't know what to do now when you reach out there's usually sort of a positional aspect to it, right? Like, you know who you're aiming for when you do this. You reach out to their mind, and it doesn't quite feel right. Which tracks, I mean, you're touching divinity. You're touching something beyond what you've normally considered. But you reach out to this point where the mind should be. Feel nothing until the mind reaches out to grab you as well. A connection has to be formed there doesn't quite feel normal but once it's connected this is this is the way it's always been i'm touching oryx does that by any way bring me into the loop previously i had said that oryx hadn't really learned how to direct too well and that he just mind screams all the time because he's not right. had to interact he's with very like bad at telepathy <laughs> right <laughs> So that makes sense. Like, like you're just like in the proximity, and as I'm kind of reaching out, trying to direct it towards this, this being, and I don't quite find it. Like, you're just you're just close enough that you pick up on the message. I'm trying, like, amplifying it in the psychic space enough that you pick you can pick up on that. It's like the emotional the emotional residue of like what he's saying. It's more the yeah. feel of what he's saying mm -hmm. instead of the words, maybe. If it's emotion. The only emotion Bentley is searching for is like coveting, greed, avarice. Whatever is valued by this God will be the thing he wants. So in this connection, he would just try to feel his way towards that. You're trying to you're trying to fit yourself, feel yourself into the telepathic connection with this god. Yes, hundred percent. I'm sure it'll be fine. <laughs> I want you to roll me Arcana 
and that's going to basically be your ability to integrate yourself into this magical link. Know that if you roll well, it's going to protect you. If you roll poorly, I'm going to give presents to Rich. Okay, excellent. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna find my center, find the three eyes within my soul that I'm going to roll Arcana. Sixteen plus two is eighteen. That's unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna give you a free enslave attempt. Uh, on that one, but maybe you roll. I don't like think I'm gonna shit. need an enslave attempt on him. No, I'm just saying. Just, just dangle a few toys, and I'm like, yep, that that works. I'm good. As we've sort of implied, you know, mages. Yeah. It is legitimately what we said earlier. You pick up a few things, and you just like start trying to touch the arcane. You're bad at it can't cast spells you don't know magic but you know enough that when magic is going you can fiddle with it some guy i was dating had one of those like you know those arc reactor things where you touch them and your hair goes up except instead of electricity it was emotion something they had invented in his mage school right so i was able to fumble with it i kind of understood what i was doing didn't really care just thought just really saw it as a way to like flirt right so i have some <laughs> ability to that is kind of what's going on here in a very weird and different way oryx so you're communicating with this being and this idea of I don't know what to do next. Yeah, like maybe he asks, "Why have you summoned me here? And and why did you choose me? Like, what what am I here for?" Welcome, child. Out loud or telepathically? It's telepathically to everyone. Ooh, mm, fantastic! So every everyone is hearing it. So when I when they say "Welcome, child." Yes, they're talking to Oryx, but you feel it embracing all three of you. I chose you because you knew loss. I chose you because you knew pain. That there are others stronger than you who took advantage. And you deserved better. The weak understand strength and gifting them strength would use it responsibly. I wanted you to come here because I need help. It's not using its mouth. So this, this being that's floating there, it is clearly just speaking to you guys into your minds, and its eyes move from Oryx to Alana, and when it moves there, it grabs you. It just pull. It's your eyes are like a the ocean and a stormy day. You know, it's just drawing you into it. Child, you have followed the bits and pieces that I reached out for you to find to bring you here, because I knew you. You of all of Saloon's followers deserved this. Could bring this word to Saloon to know that I am still here. But that Saloon had lost me. And now the temple that's around you, 
to everyone, it all changes. You see it cleaned up. You see it in its heyday. You see it underwater with these look like even possibly precursors to merfolk and Lokatha that are there that almost look more beautiful, more radiant, more happy, more everything than they are today, like in their glory there. And you see this temple and it expands out until you see like a city, an underwater city filled with this civilization. And then you see these, the water get dark. You see it get murky. You see everything get dimmer. You feel, it's like you feel inside what it feels like in a horror movie when the music changes. And then you see things coming out of the darkness. And you see battle. And you see war. And you see these paladins and clerics wielding versions of this sword, spears, tridents that are versions of this, whatever unique quality these weapons have. And they lose the battle. And these creatures come out. And this god has manifested itself personally to help defend this city. And some horrifying ritual is performed and captures this god and seals it down here and cuts it off like mind blank from being divin divinely detected by Saloon or anyone else. And it's been trapped here for a millennium or more. Next time on Kill Every Monster, The Abolith Part 2. As the attention shifts between Alana and Oryx, I've sleight of hand pointed that wand at the god, and I'm going to detect magic on them that all the magic is enchantment and illusion. And if one, if I know anything, it's I know another liar. I, I can spot another liar. You know liar. bullshitter. Mm -hmm. Something's going on. Bentley would hear from behind him the rustling of scale mail oh, and shit. the clank of a shield. And she has a silvered spear. And she levels it at Bentley. What do you think you're doing? This creature is peaceful. Listen to me. It's lying to you. I can see its magics. And he would extend the other wand to you. So he's got one wand pointed at the god. He's in the middle of both of you. And he's extending his wand of magic detection to you that has a single charge left. This is where Oryx would also kind of get involved. He'd point his sword at... At Bentley, and it says, but who here is the thief? Who here is the untrustworthy one? 
For more information about us, notes for each episode, and ways you can help support the show, head over to killeverymonster.com. If any of the ideas we've discussed on the show have sparked some of your own, tell us about it on Twitter at KEM Podcast. You'll find me at DJ Malenfant and Aram at Aram Vardian. For ad-free episodes, early releases, bonus episodes, print-ready maps, our new audio DMs notes, and my character sheets for each encounter, head over to patreon.com slash killeverymonster. You can also listen to ad-free episodes and bonus content by subscribing to the show on Apple Podcasts. Our intro theme and many of the sound effects you hear in the show were created by BattleBards. Check them out at BattleBards.com. This episode was produced by Aram Vartian and Dylan Malenfant. I also did the editing. Rich Howard was our guest. You can find him very occasionally on Twitter at Umbro Walker. We were also joined by Susanna Grace. You can find her on Twitter at Susanna Grace. And returning guest from our Flump episode, Alex Boer. You can find him on Twitter at Mr. Alex Boer. And if you are anything like me and all of that information just fell right out of your head, you'll find everything you need at killeverymonster.com. And we'll see you next time for Kill Every Monster. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. 
Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. The ancient mountainous deserts to the south of Faerun are the places where mortals first raised great temples and unlocked powerful secrets. A kingdom once fractured by infighting has been united under the iron claw of the red dragon, Chazar. The Great Lizard's quest for immortality has become an all-consuming obsession. His need for worshippers has set him on a path against the old gods of these lands, and they will not go quietly. An unlikely cabal of deities has banded together to undermine Jazar and ensure that their temples remain protected and active. They've traced tendrils of fate to preferred timelines, then selected five mortals who had the best chance of bringing those futures to fruition. You will take on the role of one of these chosen in Death to the Dragon King. Find out more about this Start Playing Games campaign and all of my other available games at aram.gay.